Hello. Hey. All right. Yeah, my name is Andy. Um, you know, I'm looking down here at uh, Mark and Tammy and their cool red Christmas sweaters, and I'm like, I'm a little jealous, you know. I love Christmas, but I can't wear red. With this belly and this beard, if I put on red and I walk in front of a little kid, they just stare me down. And I, I feel like they're saying, don't you have something more important you should be doing right now, you know? So, uh, yeah, I think that's awesome. Merry Christmas, guys. But uh, thanks for joining us this week. You know, the past couple of weeks, um, we've been coming to the tail end of this series that we're in called He Appeared, where we're looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, but we're looking at them a little bit differently. We're looking at them through this lens of Advent or the appearance of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, the Christ child, right? So this week, I'm really excited to be talking to you about faith, but over the past couple of weeks, what we've done is we've set up these Advent candles. In the first week, we lit this, the candle of hope, as Phil shared an awesome message on how Jesus is the reason for our hope. And then the second week, just this past week, Andrew Bondurant talked about peace, and he talked about how uh, Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. And he brings us peace, right? Now this week, like I said, we're going to be talking about faith. My hands are a little shaky as I'm doing this. There we go. And I'm honestly, I'm a little bit apprehensive about talking about faith. My faith journey itself has been, it's, it's a little different. It's, it's, it's been challenging to say the least. But the Bible tells us, let's start here with Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, faith is confidence in what we hope for, and it's assurance about what we do not see. Now, Eugene Peterson, in the message translation, he kind of makes it a little simpler to understand, I feel like. He also makes it a little more beautiful in his own way. It says, the fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we cannot see. So if you look at that closely, it actually says that faith is the foundation upon which our entire Christian life is built. Now, I, I said I'm a bit apprehensive about this, and I said already that my faith journey has been challenging. Well, in the early 90s, when I came out of the military, I uh, had a little bit of a, a twisted perception on what faith is and how it worked, right? I, I was young in my faith. And what I thought was that faith worked like a currency, right? I thought if I can earn enough, like if I can accumulate enough faith, and if I can maybe even do enough acts of faith, then what would happen is I could buy God's favor, right? I would be able to purchase health or financial prosperity for myself and then eventually for my family. But faith does not work this way. There's a couple things wrong with looking at faith with that perspective. One is, is that it's just not biblical, right? But, but the second is that what'll happen is you'll set up an expectation. And when you set up that expectation, the outcome is not eventually not going to line up with your expectation. And what you'll end up doing is going spiritually bankrupt. And it's dangerous. That's where people set aside the Christian faith or leave the Christian faith. Now, as I've grown though, I've learned that faith is actually a lot more similar to like knowledge or wisdom, right? Um, when you increase in knowledge or wisdom and then you exercise it, you don't spend it, you don't lose it. Instead, you prove it, right? And then it continues to grow. 
So when it comes to faith in James chapter two, we see this, it says, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. So when you truly have faith, when you believe in and you depend on God, your faith begins to grow deeper and it grows wider as you gain new life experiences. As your faith deepens, as you exercise it, as you actually take actions based upon your faith, your faith is shown by your deeds. It's proven. As I've grown older, I've also realized this, that the Christian life really is not one that's trouble-free, right? As my circle of friends and I have grown older, some of us have experienced different things. We've experienced illness. We've experienced financial difficulty. Some have lost jobs, changed careers. Some of us, as we're entering into our 50s and a little bit beyond, you know, we're starting to lose people that are important to us through death, you know, close family members and things like that. So over the past couple of years, though, Um, A couple of close friends of mine, both of them, just awesome women of faith, were diagnosed with cancer. And as we prayed for their healing, uh, they would receive news that alternated, you know, between good and bad. And I got it. Like, I understood when we would celebrate the good news, it just made sense to me, right? But here's the thing. These women also, when they would receive bad news, they would just very quickly move to this place of peace, you know? Like initially, yeah, they would have some disappointment, but very quickly they would move to this place of resolve that I just greatly admired. It showed so much strength, right? Both of these women of faith, both of them eventually, you know, they lived past their initial prognosis, but they did both eventually die from cancer. I'm really close friends though with the widower of one of these women. And and he and I, we speak often of this, even if he doesn't kind of faith that his wife had. This, even if he doesn't kind of faith was the same faith that was shown in Daniel chapter three. That was when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were standing at the edge of the fiery furnace, right? They were speaking to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, Nebuchadnezzar, I believe that our God can deliver us from this. But even if he doesn't, I'm still not gonna bow down to any other God. That's the That's the faith that both of these women showed in their lives, right? It was a source of strength. It was a source of peace, hope, and and even joy as they faced down cancer. Their victory over cancer was actually found in their faith. So as I studied for today's message, I asked, you know, how does faith work in our lives? If it doesn't guarantee us this trouble-free existence, then what do we do when we have questions or when we do feel as though we've come to the end of our faith? You know, how do we overcome that? How do we overcome our doubts? How do we find answers to our questions? How do we grow in our faith? So today we're gonna look at three significant appearances. We're gonna look at, you know, Jesus's appearance to Thomas. That's in the book of John chapter 20. That's where we are in our current Bible study, right? Uh, We're also gonna look at the appearance of the Gabriel angel, of the, of the angel Gabriel, sorry, to Zechariah. And that's in the book of Luke. And then after that, we'll also look at how an angel appeared in a dream to Joseph, the father of Jesus. All right, we're gonna look at the reactions of all three of these men. We'll see how we might relate to each one of them and how as they overcame these questions or doubt in their lives, their faith led to significant breakthroughs. Together, we're gonna see how we 
by living and loving like Jesus might do the same. So let's start right here in John chapter 20, right? We're gonna start reading in verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So looking at this text for the day, the first thing we see is this parenthetical, like this parenthetical expression where it says, you know, Thomas, you know, known as Didymus. Didymus is simply the same name. It's the name Thomas, but it's in the Greek. Both Thomas and Didymus mean the same thing. They mean twin, okay? And, you know, Thomas, when the disciples tried to tell him that he'd seen Jesus, he protested, right? He insisted on hard evidence. It's almost like Thomas, the way I read this, I see it like Thomas is looking at him and going, what, are are you crazy? My name is twin. I understand what it means and and, and how you can be taken in by a simple resemblance, right? You know, um, a lot of us can relate to this too, though. You know, maybe you've seen the movie, The Parent Trap, or maybe you've read Mark Twain's uh, The Prince and the Pauper, right? Now, Thomas and the apostles, they would have been very familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau. This was a pair of twins, right? And Jacob fooled his father, right? Esau was due a blessing, but Jacob made himself resemble Esau and he stole Esau's blessing. All of them would have been familiar with this. As we read on, you know, we can see that Thomas, as he's talking to his friends, he says, you know, I'll accept your evidence. I'll accept it as like, circumstantial or anecdotal, you know, maybe even testimonial. But what, but what I won't do, it is, it's not going to stand up in my court of law because I need physical, demonstrative, or forensic evidence. Thomas needed to build an airtight case, right? It was like he was a member of Jerusalem CSI or something. He wanted more than just to see Jesus. He wanted to actually touch the sores on his hands. It's kind of gross, but he wanted to actually put his hand into the sore on Jesus's side. Now, Thomas is known to many people now as as doubting Thomas. And this is actually the third time that Thomas speaks up in the book of John. He also speaks up in chapter 11 and chapter 14. If if you want to learn more about those, you can go back to those messages. All of our messages are online at media.cccgo.com. I'm the online director, so I'm going to tell you about our website, right? It just makes sense. But go back to there and you can learn about Thomas's other statements that he made. And what you'll see and what I see in them is that Thomas is this guy that he asks questions that other people are just afraid to ask. They have the same questions, but they're afraid to voice them. Sometimes Thomas is the guy that just says things that other people are afraid to say. In this case, Thomas actually is fairly reasonable. He's insisting on having the same evidence that was available to his friends. Now, I think that, you know, as I look at Thomas and I, and I see the way that he does these questions and these statements he makes, I see myself in Thomas or I see Thomas in me. I like to ask questions. I like to push back. You know, that's just part of me. I also think, though, that internally, Thomas, you know, he, he may have been feeling just left out. His friends had experienced this really extraordinary thing, this miracle as they've seen the resurrected Savior. He's the only one of them that wasn't there to take part of it, right? He was isolated. And honestly, I feel like this time of year at Christmas, you know, many of us could be feeling some very similar feelings to Thomas. You know, we see other people being joyful. 
We see them celebrating and happy, but we feel isolated. We instead feel grief or pain. We feel sorrow that we're somehow, you know, just missing out. So this sense of isolation may lead to questions that actually grow into a barrier of doubt in our lives. And now speaking of Christmas, let's look at the stories of the two men that I told you we'd speak about today, Zechariah and Joseph. These are people within the Christmas narrative whose lives were changed by significant appearances, right? In the first chapter of Luke, we find this. We find the the story of Zechariah. It starts at verse 5. It says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. There's a lot of eyes in there. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. So at this time, uh, priests in Israel served at the temple in Jerusalem on a rotating basis. There was enough of them that they could do this. They did like week-long shifts and it would typically come up like twice a year. So they would go to Jerusalem to serve in the temple and then jobs would be assigned daily. One of the jobs, some of the jobs were very important. They would actually be assigned randomly by lots, right? And the job of burning incense on the altar of incense in the temple was one of these jobs. It was an extremely important job. In fact, if you were selected to burn incense on the altar of incense, you would only do it once in your lifetime. It was a once in a lifetime experience. A priest that performed this task was actually called at the time, he was called rich for having done it. All right, now we know that Zechariah was very old. Well, he had been yet to be selected for this task. But on the day in question that we're reading about right here in Luke, we see that Zechariah's number comes up. He's selected to burn the incense. After he burns the incense, he's supposed to go outside and perform a blessing on the people of Israel. Now he walks into the temple with two other priests. But before he approaches the altar of incense, which is directly in front of this curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place, which is where like the physical presence of God would be. You know, as, as he was approaching that altar, we see in verse 11, what happens to Zechariah. It says, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you're to call him John. Now the angel goes on and describes how John is to be raised by Elizabeth and Zechariah, right? And then he also tells Zechariah that John's going to be this prophet that will prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And in verse 18, though, we see Zechariah's response to this. He says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Now, as we initially review this evidence, if we look at this just at the surface, you know, Zechariah's response might seem to be just a little bit surprising, right? It, it looks, though, as though Zechariah would have had every reason to believe. The first would just be his personal history. Zechariah, it says, was brought up in a family of priests. He was highly educated. He was well-respected. In fact, he married a woman that was also born into a family of priests. So his personal history would tell you he's probably amenable to the things of God, right? The second thing would be the location. 
So Zechariah was in the temple. I told you that he was at the altar of incense. The altar of incense sets directly in front of the veil or the curtain that separated this holy place from the most holy place. It's literally as close as you can get in the temple to the presence of God, the physical presence of God without stepping through that barrier. So just being in this spot was extraordinary. The third thing though was his company. When he walked into the space, he had two other men with him, but both of them would leave. They wouldn't dare stay as Zechariah were to light this incense. Only one person could be at the room, in the room at this time. Zechariah knew this. When he looked up and he saw another person there and he saw this angel, he knew it was an undeniable miracle. So these are the external factors in Zechariah's case, right? But as we read on, as we, and we look into it closely, if you just put yourself like I did in Zechariah's place, I can only imagine what was going on internally or inside of Zechariah. Imagine this, like you're in the final years of your life. You're finally selected to play this, you know, incredibly important once in a lifetime role. And immediately when your task begins, things go crazy. You look up and there's an angel in the room with you. And the angel says this, he says simply, your prayer has been heard, right? I wonder if Zechariah just thought, wait, I'm old, which prayer, you know? And then he's told it, you're gonna have a son if he was like, wait, I'm old, <laughs> why that one, you know? But, uh, you know, you can start to see why Zechariah may have responded with doubt. I'm sure that there's people in this place and watching us online as well that can relate to Zechariah. Maybe you've followed God for your entire life. You've never deviated in your service but there's just something that's been missing. You haven't fully experienced joy because you feel like God's let you down in some way. For Zechariah and his wife, their heartache was their inability to produce an heir. At the time of this, you know, this inability to produce an heir would have been thought to be the result of sin or some kind of disfavor with God. Imagine serving God your entire life, but having people look at you and wonder what sin you had committed or why you were outside of God's favor. Eventually, you might start to wonder the same. Now, maybe the source of your heartache is different. You know, maybe yours is, you know, you've been praying for a healing or you've been praying for a child that's not following God. You know, maybe there's something else that you've been praying for. Maybe it's been months, maybe it's been years that you've been praying and you're still waiting for an answer. Maybe this sense of disappointment or disillusionment, maybe this sense of frustration has been the basis for questions in your life. Maybe these questions are beginning to build into a barrier of doubt. In Zechariah's case, the angel was shocked at his response. He made it so Zechariah couldn't speak until the child was born and then actually named. Due to his doubt, Zechariah was even unable to fulfill his role that day. He's picked once in a lifetime to do this. He, he, he can't do it. He can't speak. He can't perform the blessing over the people of Israel. And he can't even tell them why. But here's the thing. Once his son was born and Zechariah insisted in keeping with the angel's instructions that his child be named John, Zechariah was finally able to speak again. The naming of the child was an act of faith on Zechariah's part. This launched his son, John the Baptist, onto a pathway that would lead to him becoming the prophet that would prepare the way for the Messiah, Jesus, the savior of the world. 
So now, speaking of the Messiah, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. And in verses 18 to 21, we see this as it talks about Joseph and Mary. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So here, you know, in contrast to Zechariah, we have Joseph. Joseph is a carpenter. He's a working class man. He's actually betrothed. He's, he's got a marriage contract to be married to Mary. <laughs> and here's what he finds out. He's got two facts in front of him. One is that Mary was pregnant. And the second was he knew for a fact he was not the father. In verse 19, we see that Joseph was faithful to the law, yet compassionate. Rather than expose Mary to public disgrace, Joseph made a plan, right? He was going to divorce her quietly. But in verse 20, we see that an angel comes to him in a dream and this angel gives him a course correction. Maybe you can relate to Joseph. Maybe you've had a plan for your life. Maybe you've been on a course, but then your plans are changed by some outside force, right? This interruption could have been caused by something you saw in a dream. It might be some other prompting. Maybe your interruption was the loss of a job, or maybe your interruption was brought about, you know, by a pandemic or something of that nature. But one thing you know is that your life is about to change. For some of us, this perceived, you know, loss of control takes us to a crossroads. Like Andrew talked about last week, this crossroads is a very important place. It can lead to a closer connection with God, or it could lead to questions that if left unaddressed, build into a barrier that is a barrier of doubt in our life. In Joseph's case though, his response was immediate. I love it. He says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife. Joseph could have written this whole thing off as an inauthentic message, right? It happened in a dream. That's a, he could have just said, oh, that's not real. It's a dream. He could have said, that wasn't the voice of God, right? Maybe he just thought, oh, I ate something bad. Have you ever had a dream and you thought that it was because of that? Well, instead of thinking any of that, Joseph accepts his course correction, right? And he took action. He immediately did what he was told. We see throughout the Bible that faith results in and it's proven by action. Joseph's faith and his resulting action resulted in his being entrusted with caring for the life of the savior of the world. So now we've seen Zechariah's initial response of doubt. We saw this followed by the, you know, as it, following the angel's appearance in the temple. Sorry, after his action of faith, we saw a breakthrough in the birth of his son, John the Baptist. We've also seen Joseph's response of faith and his action of taking Mary as his wife. We saw a breakthrough here in the form of the birth of a savior. So, so far we've got the birth of a prophet and the birth of a savior. Right now, let's look at the resolution of Thomas's story in John 20. Let's talk about what I like to call the birth of a movement. A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. 
Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. This time, Thomas is present and Jesus confronts Thomas in his doubt. The first thing that Jesus did after his appearance was he addressed the emotions in the room, right? As he said, peace be with you. Now, next, Jesus presented the evidence of his crucifixion to Thomas. He invited him to come and touch the holes in his hands and actually place his hand in his side where he'd been pierced by a spear. The final thing that Jesus did as as he addressed Thomas was he simply invited Thomas to stop doubting and believe. I think it's really important, you know, before we go on that we kind of are clear on what's meant here by the word believe because in English, the word believe can simply mean, you know, holding on to an opinion. But in the Greek here, the way this verbiage is, is set up, it actually means to place your confidence in, okay? So that's the difference, like seeing a ladder on the ground and thinking, ah, I think that can hold my weight. And then, and then actually taking the ladder, profiting against a two-story building and climbing to the top of it. <laughs> that's actually putting your confidence in the ladder, right? So that's what we're talking about when we speak of believing or faith in this instance. When it comes to overcoming doubt, Billy Graham often said that it requires engaging the emotions, the mind, and the will of man. And Tim Keller, he calls this the heart of man. You know, the, in America, a lot of times we think of the heart as just like the center for emotions, but biblically it means much more. It's the center of your mind, your will, and, and your emotions, okay? so. You might be thinking to yourself, you know, that's, that's great to know, but what does it mean to me, you know, now? Well, I think we can look at how Jesus addressed Thomas in his time of doubt, and we can apply his actions to our life. This has been the point of our year-long Bible study through the book of John, right? To learn to live and love like Jesus. So we're going to look at how Jesus addressed Thomas's heart in order to overcome the barriers of doubt that he had constructed. So... The first thing that Jesus did, we've already said this, was he addressed Thomas's emotions, right? It's important that we acknowledge that faith is not devoid of emotion and neither is it controlled by it. So Billy Graham used to describe this difference between a healthy and unhealthy emotional state by comparing it to the difference between a campfire and a forest fire. So a campfire is, is something that's controlled, it's useful, You know, it's generally beneficial to your camping experience. A forest fire, though, is something else entirely. It can literally destroy you and anything else in its path. A healthy emotional state is one that replicates Jesus, right? Throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus is not devoid of emotions, nor did he let them control his actions or consume him. Jesus demonstrated for us that healthy emotions can inspire right actions. We must start though from this place of peace. Remember, true peace is not devoid of emotion or passion. Uh, True peace is understanding that God's with you. He loves you as one of his children, right? It's understanding that God is in ultimate control of the situation that you're in. Notice that when Jesus prayed peace 
for the disciples when he appeared in that room, he didn't change their circumstance. He wished them peace within it. Now, as we continue to follow the example of Jesus, we must also engage the intellect. Contrary to what we see portrayed you know, many times in Hollywood or in the news, we do not check our intellect at the door when we decide to follow Christ. Being Christian does not negate our ability to be thinking, rational people. A great study of this is the, the book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. That's one of my favorites. And, and if you're not a reader, I, I do recommend you read it, but if you're not a reader, there's also there's a uh, documentary on Amazon Prime that you can see that explains it really well too. I just watched it the other night. Now, our mind is engaged when we consider the evidence that's presented to us. This evidence we gather you know, in three ways primarily. It's, it's through God's word, through personal experience, and through the testimony of others. The first source to go to for facts related to your case is simple. It's the Bible, right? We've got to have familiarity with God's word. It, it teaches us about his character, his heart, and his actions. It, it points again to this verse-by-verse -verse Bible study that we've been doing through the book of John throughout the course of the year. If we're going to live in love like Jesus, we've truly got to get to know Jesus. Now, another significant source of, it, of evidence could simply be, you know, recounting the times that God's come through for you in the past. Sarah talked about this earlier. You know, my parents used to call this counting my blessings. And we used to sing a song in my dad's church out of the hymnal. It was called Count Your Blessings. I love this song. And the second verse has these words in it. It says, count your many blessings. Every doubt will fly. And you, you will keep singing as the days go by. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Phil wanted me to sing that, but that wasn't that wasn't happening. I don't sing. I'm sorry. I sing for God and that's it. Uh, don't misunderstand me though. You know, as I say this, you know, this, this isn't like a look on the bright side kind of message. I want you to take a true accounting of the ways that God has worked in your life. Now, one thing that I admire is for some Christians, they, they pray and they keep a prayer journal as they pray. This way they can also record their answers to prayer. And this gives them an awesome, true accounting of the ways that God has worked in their life, right? Now, me personally, I'm married and my wife helps me with this, okay? My wife reminds me of the ways that God has worked in our life. We've had many, many miracles and just outstanding examples of how God has worked in, in our lives as a couple and also in my life individually. And I appreciate that she's there to remind me of that. Now, that reminds me also though, that there's a third way to gather evidence. And that's, it's so simple. It's, it's not being afraid to talk to other people, talk to other people and learn of ways that God has worked in their lives. This way you can gather evidence and engage your intellect. Seeking the testimony of others can be as simple as asking a question. It can also be, like I mentioned earlier, just reading a book by a trusted Christian author. Another way to gather someone else's testimony is listening to a podcast by a, a trusted Christian leader. All of these are valid ways to gather testimony, right? Now, the third aspect of the heart that Jesus addressed was the will. And it can be tempting to think that a lack of faith is due solely to a lack of knowledge, right? But many times an expression of doubt is actually much more closely associated to the will. In other words, without a will to believe, you will not believe. Sometimes 
Doubt has very little to do with a lack of knowledge. Instead, it's a result of disillusionment or fear. These are holding you back. It could be a desire to hold on to your current life. It could be just resistance to change or some type of guilt that maybe you're just not good enough, right? But you've got the knowledge. The knowledge is there and it's the will that is holding you back. So once we've addressed the emotions and we've engaged our intellect, the next thing we have to do is appeal to the will. And this is done, if we do it just like Jesus did, through an invitation. To engage the will, we must invite belief. The invitation to believe, it's, it's a vital key and it, it must not be overlooked. A simple way to do this, a simple way to address the will is just to do it directly. Ask a simple yes or no question, right? Will you place your confidence in Jesus or do you believe? Jesus's invitation to Thomas was maybe a little bit more direct, you know? Jesus said, stop doubting and believe. This, would, this is what we would have called in sales an assumptive close. It's very direct. And Jesus has though this, you know, special kind of confidence, doesn't he? Now, one further key, as I read through this and I was, as I was praying over this, I, I missed this several times as I, as I was reading through this. One key to overcoming doubt, it's so obvious. And it's simply, it, it's found in verses 26 and 27, where it says, Jesus came and stood among them. It's simply this, the presence of God. And in this case, it was in the person of Jesus. Now, today, God's presence is expressed in the person of the Holy Spirit for each of us. And the Holy Spirit is an advocate. He's working on the heart of everyone that's been called to follow Jesus. As an advocate, God's Spirit, His presence, is here to bolster His legal position as He blasts through the barriers of doubt that we may have set up in our life. So let's read just a little bit further in John chapter 20 as we're wrapping up. And let's look at the result of the application of these four keys that we just talked about. In John chapter 20, verses 28 and 29, we see this. It says, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, and Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So this breakthrough that launches a movement is what we see right here. It's, it's in Thomas's response. When Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he recognizes Jesus as divine. This is the first time we see this in the epistle of John, right? He's actually declaring that Jesus is not just his master, he's also God. Thomas has changed from doubter to devoted disciple. Is that the crux? It's at the pinnacle of John's gospel. It's the reason John wrote the gospel. It was so that people that came along after John would be able to read this gospel and come to an understanding and a belief in Jesus Christ. So this breakthrough in accepting Jesus as our Lord and our God, it launches us into this pathway. It's actually the movement that I talked about. Initially, the movement was called the way, and now it's come to be known as Christianity. So now it's time for me to ask every single one of us to answer some simple questions. I'm gonna to try to keep these as simple yes or no questions. The first is this, do you relate to any of the people that we've talked about today? Do you relate to Zechariah? Maybe you've been witness to just a preponderance or a vast mountain of evidence that's 
uh, that's been gathered through a lifetime within, of serving within the church, but you have doubts and you haven't fully committed. Or you're having troubles accepting God at his word due to an unanswered prayer or some other unmet expectation. Now, maybe you relate to Joseph. Maybe you had a plan for your life, but your plan was interrupted, right? It's, it, do you have any doubts because you feel in your life a lack of control? And then there's Thomas. Maybe you're like me and you kind of re- can relate to Thomas. You know, maybe you've had questions. But in this case, maybe your friends or the people around you might seem to be really excited about this Christianity thing, right? Now, you, though, have questions. Maybe you've been labeled a skeptic. But you really want a good chance to review the evidence before taking the leap and accepting Jesus as your Lord and God. Or maybe you've set up barriers to belief for some reason. You know, maybe it's past hurts, maybe even at the hands of people that are supposed to be your friends or supposed to be followers of Jesus. Well, if you're not currently a follower of Jesus Christ, I invite you simply to believe. I invite you to place your confidence in the fact that 2,000 years ago, Jesus appeared. He appeared in this small town of Bethlehem. His appearance was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, right? Moses, David, Isaiah, Daniel, and Micah are just a few of the prophets that told of his coming. The reality is the entire Old Testament points to the appearance of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He's the man that would save us from our own sin. I invite you to place your confidence in the fact, like Thomas did, that Jesus died and then he was raised from the dead three days later. I invite you to just close your eyes and picture in your mind the scars in his hand and in his hands and in his side. These scars are evidence that Jesus was so much more than a great teacher. He's truly divine. The scars are signs, they're evidence, they're the proof that God came to earth in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and he suffered for your sake. Have confidence in the fact that Jesus is the resurrected son of God and that he is divine. Do you believe? That's a simple yes or no question. If you do, and you'd like to accept this invitation, if you'd like to acknowledge Jesus as your risen savior, as your master, then it's very simple. I want you to take this action of faith then, Text the word now to 812-858-8668. We're in a pandemic, so an altar call looks a little different now, right? So pull out your phone and just text that word now to us at 812-858-8668. One of our care team members will contact you. We wanna find out how we can pray for you, how we can pray with you, and how we can help you take this next step in your faith journey. Please don't wait. If you're joining us at live.cccgo.com, There's a link in the comments. You can click that. Be sure to give us your email address or your phone number so that we can contact you as well. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, maybe you're more like Zechariah. You're struggling to accept some of the other promises of God. Or maybe you're like Joseph. Maybe you're concerned or you're struggling because of the path that you see in front of you. Then I invite you to do this. I invite you to place your confidence and Sarah said this earlier so, so beautifully. Place your confidence in God as a, as a father, right? He's your father, and he loves you as one of his children. Maybe the father you have here on earth, you know, uh, maybe he didn't paint a great picture 
of what the perfect father looks like. Let me assure you, God is a father unlike, he's unlike any other father on earth. You know, the same scriptures that point towards Jesus as the Messiah reveal God as a father that's more than creator and provider. He's our redeemer, our shepherd. He protects, guides, comforts, corrects, and loves us. He's eternal and he's all powerful. Will you trust him? Another simple yes or no question. Now, if you require more evidence, then, you know, as as your brother in Christ, I say this, just ask me. I'd love to share the ways that God has worked in my life. Another thing you can do is talk to the people on either side of you, or, you know, if you're watching this from home, contact friends, family members that are also followers of God. Talk to them, gather evidence, get their testimony in order to build up your knowledge and then use that to help build up your faith. Another thing you can do is just as I said earlier, please just text the word now to us at 812-858-8668. Same thing, one of our care team members would love to know how they can pray for you and how they can pray with you. They'd love to share their story with you as well, I am sure, to help build up your faith. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, but you're not currently struggling with doubt, then, you know, I pray that you take this teaching to heart. Eventually you will encounter doubt or questions either in your own life or in the life of someone close to you. Know though, that as you encounter and you overcome or you break through barriers of doubt in your life, you know, you're gonna build muscles. You'll, you'll gain maturity. Your faith will grow deeper. It's gonna grow wider. And this foundation of faith will aid us in moments of questioning. It places on a path to momentous breakthrough. Our actions will eventually reflect and they will prove our faith, all right? So let's go ahead and let's pray, all right? Father God, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the gift of your son that we celebrate, especially in this season, God. Now, God, also I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, God, thank you that it's here and and, and he helps us in times of doubt or unbelief, right? To connect. God, help us to connect with your word or with others that can remind us of your goodness, Father. God, it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you very much.